Following the final bold judgment that's recorded for us at the end of chapter 16, really for the last time, John is going to take another what we call parenthetic break in order to kind of color in a few additional details critical to our understanding of this time period known as Great Tribulation. In fact, in the chronological sequence of events, Revelation 19 verse 11 heaven opening, and Jesus coming, the second coming of Jesus, really picks up where chapter 16 leaves off. Now, as to the need for this particular break in the action, on two separate occasions at this point, John has very casually mentioned the judgment of what he refers to as Babylon the Great. In Revelation 14, verse 8, He writes that an angel followed, saying, Babylon has fallen, has fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And then in his record of this last bold judgment, John notes in Revelation 16, verse 19, that great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Before John, the apostle, finishes this book, Documenting the second coming of Jesus, Christ's return to the earth, the establishment of his kingdom, and the beginning of what's known as the millennial reign. In Revelation 17 and 18, John first, though, takes a moment and he explains to us what this city, Babylon, what it represented, and why she was judged so harshly. Now, there are several ways that you could approach these two chapters. This morning, what we're going to do, though, is start by defining what it is that John's specifically referring to when he observes in verse 5 of chapter 17, mystery, Babylon the great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. So let's define Babylon. That gives us context, I think, for these two chapters. Now, to do this, we should, right from the jump, acknowledge the obvious. So the obvious point is that Babylon was an ancient city, an ancient city of massive influence, with roots stemming back to the early developments of a post-world flood by the descendants of Noah. Yes, it goes back that far. Babylon, originally known as the city of Babel, was constructed, we're told, in the land of Shinar, along the banks of the Euphrates River. The city itself was founded by a mighty but very wicked leader, a man by the name of Nimrod. And he built this city, we're told, in direct defiance of God's instructions for mankind. In in Genesis 9, verse 7, again, following the flood, God gave a very particular instruction. He told humanity to bring forth abundantly. means have a lot of babies and multiply and fill the earth. The sad tale of what happens is recorded for us in Genesis 11. Again, you don't have to turn there. I'll read it for you. We're told that the whole earth had one language and speech, and it came to pass that as they, the collective, journeyed from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. We're told that they had brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. So they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name... For ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Uh, When the story was said and done, man's rebellion here against God and the building of this tower, in order we're told to make for themselves this name, it eventually necessitated the Lord, his direct, like kind of interference, his intervention. We're told again in the story that God comes down and confuses their universal language. So as a result, with the inability to communicate with one another, man then ceased building the city, ceased building the tower, and proceeded to obey God by scattering across the earth. Over the centuries that followed, the people who did remain in the plain of Shinar, who would become known as the Chaldeans, they would build upon the ruins of Babel a new city that they called Babylon. It's interesting that the ancient word Babylon literally means confusion. While Babylon would always prove to be a regional power, it's a very old city, 
by the 6th century BC, Babylon would not only find herself being kind of the largest, most powerful city in the world, but Babylon would become the new capital of a new empire led by ancient King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, even when the Babylonians tragically fell in the night, in one night, to the Medes and the Persians, the city of Babylon was spared destruction and allowed to remain as an important global hub. Historically, we know and have evidence that Babylon's significance would would continue on the world stage uh, well into what we call the Hellenistic time period, or the, the period where the Greeks were ruling the world. That said, after Alexander the Great's death, ironically, in Babylon, and then the power struggle amongst his generals that commenced, it only took a few short years for this famous city, an important city, to become a ghost town. In fact, by the time that John receives this revelation and refers to Babylon the Great, please understand, there was no Babylon. Babylon was slowly being overcome by creeping desert sands. So we do know that Babylon was this ancient city of importance. The second point that needs to be made when we seek to define what John is referencing when he mentions this ancient city is that Babylon does not exist today. There is no city. Obviously, the reality that the ruins of Babylon remain undisturbed about 50 miles south of Baghdad kind of adds an interesting wrinkle to these two important chapters that have Babylon being such a central figure. You have to kind of ask, when John here references a future Babylon, is he speaking of a literal city or is he using figurative language? Now, though it is entirely possible that at some point we do see Babylon rise from the ashes of history in order to become a religious and economic center for the world. Saddam Hussein had plans to do this. Those plans were interrupted by a war. We should note that you should be careful when reading the book of Revelation and future prophecy. A lot of uh, misconceptions arose about the book of Revelation off of this idea that it was impossible for Israel to rise from the ashes and become its own state. We saw that happen. So it's possible that Babylon, when we're talking about this city of Babylon, that it's an actual city. That's true. That being said, I believe that there are simply too many elements within these two chapters that indicate Babylon, which very well could be a real place, but that Babylon, as John is referencing, it presents much more. It's much greater than being a literal location on the earth. Which leads us, really, to the third and final consideration in our quest to define the term. When the Apostle John references Babylon the Great, John knew something important, something you should keep in mind. The title itself possessed a very deep and rich literary significance to the larger biblical narrative. It's an interesting thought to chew on, but second, only to... Jerusalem, the holy city of Jerusalem, Babylon is mentioned in your Bible an astounding 287 times. As such, some scholars have said that the Bible is really a tale of two cities. Though Babylon was indeed a physical place, like Egypt of old, figuratively, the city always represented in biblical literature, it represented the world and a moral system that was directly antithetical to the purposes of God. Like, in fact, Babylon was synonymous in Scripture with idolatry, with false religion. In a way, Babylon represented an alternative norm and a counterculture to what God was offering mankind. You know, instead of using the term Babylon, more typically, the New Testament writers would refer to the same idea, the same concept, in kind of a very vague, broad-ended term. They would just call it the world. And then they would contrast godliness, life with God, living life as God intended, with what? Worldliness. Or life in rebellion against the way that God God wanted. You had the world, and you had the way that God wanted things to be. In John chapter 18, Jesus kind of plays off of this when he declares that my kingdom is not of this world. It's different. It's foreign. 
With that in mind, in Romans 12, verse 2, every believer is encouraged, quote, not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. Regarding, again, the use of language, the Apostle Paul would take these things one step further. When in his first letter to the Corinthians, he would contrast the Spirit of God with the Spirit of this world. Babylon the Great is just another way of referring to the same influence. Now, as we approach these two chapters, it is vitally important that you see what John is referencing using the term Babylon the Great as being intentionally broad. It's broad. In fact, it's not just broad, but it's, it's far-reaching. It's big. It's kind of the macro. In fact, one of the unforced errors that I think biblical scholars make in their expositions of these two chapters is when they seek to define Babylon too narrowly. For example, there are those who try to define religious Babylon, which is what chapter 17 addresses, as being some type of end times perversion of Roman Catholicism. And yet the problem is this religious system that John is referencing has existed since the fall of man. And it's manifested throughout all ages and all times in all kinds of various ways. You see, any moral system, apart from faith and the atoning work of Jesus on the cross, any system contrary to that is part of Babylon the Great. Making then such a, a narrow interpretation that it's the Roman Catholic Church or one particular religious expression so confusing and I think off. As just another example, when we get to chapter 18 next Sunday and examine commercial Babylon, the same rule will apply. You know, the systems, and I'll take two on the polar ends, the systems of, of capitalism and communism, two different economic systems. They're separate, undoubtedly, and they're vastly different, no doubt, but they are branches, interestingly enough, connected to the same fallen tree, fed by the same rotten roots. They are both worldly systems devised by sinful man, and they both have serious flaws and obvious problems. Again, when you think of Babylon the Great, religious or commercial, think broad and not narrow. From her very inception, by, near, by Nimrod. And one could argue her first manifestation being the lie that Satan told Eve in the Garden of Eden. Babylon has always represented an alternative lifestyle, a counterculture, a secular societal structure, a humanistic take on morality that stands in direct opposition to the one that God offers humanity and has articulated accordingly through His Word. Whether it be ancient Egypt or the Canaanites or Buddhist or Hindu or Assyrian or Babylonian or Grecian or Roman or even the Muslim cults, or for that matter, even more modern moral expressions found in humanism or liberal progressivism or secularism, or for that matter, atheism, Babylon, the spirit of Babylon, the mother of all harlots, is behind all of them. Back when the system was first known as Babel, Babylon was a way of living that was void of God's influence, and specifically Jesus' influence. She represented a God-rejecting world. Babylon is the moral framework for a society that man is seeking to build for himself. Birthed in the original lie that man could be, or make, for that matter, his own God. Babylon has always represented the system that has facilitated that particular perversion. Well, that lead in, let's dive into our text. Verse 1 of chapter 17. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me. This is John writing. And this angel invited me, saying, Come, 
I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. John begins here by saying that one of these seven angels who had these seven bowls, these bold judgments, presumably we can assume his task is completed. He's already poured out his judgment. But he comes over to John. And I like kind of the casual way that chapter 17 opens. The angel comes over. He's done with his task. And he invites this old man to come and see. Now he asks him to come and see a very specific occurrence. Look at the text again. He wants to show John the judgment of the great harlot. That's the context. It sets the context for the chapter. It provides for us its thesis. The great harlot will be judged. That's what John will be shown. Now, in light of this, there are a few things to keep in mind before we see John's vision play itself out. First, since this woman will be named in verse 5 as Babylon the Great, we know that she represents this worldly moral system offering man an alternative to the life Jesus offers. In fact, she's revealed to John in the vision the way that God sees her. She is, and I'll quote from the old King James, a great whore. Secondly, in the vision, John is told that this whore, the harlot, sits on many waters. Now, there's no reason to, to debate or speculate as to what these many waters represent, because we're told in verse 15, the angel tells John that the waters which you saw, where the harlot sits, well, there, there are peoples and, and multitudes, nations and tongues. Like Ultimately, it tells us that this godless moral system, represented by the great whore, is universal. And the undercurrent by which all the various cultures and national norms and world religions, and customs of the world reside. She is, you would, you would imagine, the undercurrent for every single way of living apart from the way that God has determined in His Word. Thirdly, you should note that the angel confirms here right from the beginning that it was the kings of the earth, which would speak to the world leaders, the establishment, the elite. It was they who committed fornication, with this harlot. They facilitated this unholy union, the alliance. Not to be undone, though, the inhabitants of the earth, again, very broad, found the entire thing to be intoxicating. Got swept up in the tide. They were led astray. Verse 13, and as we go through this chapter, we're going we're to kind of work through it systematically. We're told in verse 3, So he, this being the angel, John says, carried me away in the spirit, which again, we should note, means that John is having a spiritual experience. This is a spiritual vision. So he's carried away into the wilderness. And that word is loaded with, with meaning in the original Greek. It's a place of, if you're trying to get the picture in your mind, of total desolation, despair. John says, I saw a woman, again, this would be the great whore, sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Again, quite a vision, isn't it? And showing John the ultimate judgment of this worldly, secular, moral system represented by the great harlot. The vision opens in a place of, of desolation. It's a desolate place. And you have this woman... We're told riding on a scarlet beast. Now, we don't have to speculate as to who the beast is. In light of our understanding, as established already in our travels through the book of Revelation, this beast, again characteristically full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns, we've seen all this language before, we know that this represents the Antichrist. So the beginning of the end of this worldly system understand, will be initiated when the system itself rides upon the back of this final world leader to a position of great prominence during a season of immense difficulty, 
desolation, wilderness, the woman on the back of the beast, and the wilderness. Verse 4, the woman, again, this secular moral system, John says was arrayed in purple and scarlet. So she has the appearance of nobility. She was adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. So she also possessed power and wealth. She had in her hand, John notices, a golden cup that was full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. So she looks good. She looks powerful. She looks noble. Outwardly, she's, she's checking all the boxes. She even has this, this golden cup. But what she's offering, what she's peddling, what she's selling is defiling. It's filthy. It's an abomination. John then notices that on her forehead, a name was written. Now there's two ways to see this if you're trying to imagine it on your own. Some would say, well, this, this is a tattoo on her forehead. Um, probably not. More unlikely what this was was a headband uh, with a moniker with the name on it, um, which, on a side note, was typically worn by prostitutes in Roman culture. So he's seeing on this, this the harlot has an, a, a headband. That would have been normal. And then on this headband was written a name. So John tells us mystery, which, which would be a hidden thing. There is a hidden thing, Babylon the Great. So, so now we identify the hidden thing. So there's this hidden thing. That hidden thing is Babylon the Great. And if you want to know who Babylon the Great is, well, then we're told she is the mother of, of harlots, the mother of the abominations of the earth. Again, Babylon is the system that bursts all spiritual idolatry that exists in the world. Verse 6, continuing, John says, I saw the woman drunk with, and kind of pause there. This is not in the past tense. So she's gotten drunk. She is getting drunk. It's a continual process. She's continually drinking. She's intoxicated with filling herself with, and then we're told, the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And note this godless, worldly morality. Again, founded in a lie. It's always been from the beginning throughout the centuries, hostile to anyone who would dare stand for the truth. John says, and when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. In the Greek, this is actually that he marveled with a great marveling. It's the duplicate of really the same term, which, which implies an added intensity. John is saying, I saw this thing, and I stood flabbergasted. Stunned, staggered. Verse 7. But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman. So the angel's like, I will tell you how this worldly system is going to be judged. And I will tell you of the beast that carries her. So I'm going to give you some information about this man, this Antichrist, which has then the seven heads and the ten horns. Now let's get into it. The beast, the angel says, that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition, which is, for the most part, a summary here of the general story arc of the Antichrist. And those who dwell on the earth, the angel says, will marvel, whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they see the beast that was and is not, and yet is, which is a reference back to chapter 13 and this moment in time where the Antichrist suffers a mortal head wound, but he survives it. Again, he was, he is not. The world thought he was dead, and yet he is. He comes back to life. Verse 9, here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads, and, and again, this would be of the beast, are seven mountains on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Now, now the idea here in the ordering is that the seven heads also reference seven kings in addition to seven mountains. That's how it's framed. Now with regard to the, the mountains and the kings, 
the angel continues, he says, five have fallen. One is, and the other, the seventh, has not yet come. Meaning, at least from John's vantage point, it's still yet future. And when he comes, the seventh king, he must continue a short time. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seventh and is going to perdition. So you get that? <laughs> Tracking right along? Now, I know that, th- that these verses sound initially kind of confusing, but, but let me unpack them just line by line because they're really not that confusing. The seven heads of the beast on which the woman sits. And again, the woman is whom? Not to be redundant, but the woman is is Babylon, is this secular moral system. So the seven heads of the beast on which the woman sits, representing the Antichrist, again the beast, they are seven mountains and also seven kings. Now there are some scholars with this verse in mind love to point out, ah, this is evidence. This is evidence that the Antichrist will come from Rome and this system will be the Roman Catholic Church because Rome was known as being the city set on seven hills. Clearly, the problem is that we're not told that she sits on seven hills. (laughs) We're told she sits on seven mountains. And not splitting hairs, but if If John wanted to let us know it was hills, there's another Greek word, very particular one for hills, but that's not used. These are seven mountains. See, the more accurate interpretation would be to see these seven mountains, again with biblical imagery, as a figurative way of describing seven governments, seven world powers. The notion of this man-exalting moral system, dominating the world through the reign of seven empires, seemingly ties into also then the existence, the parallel, the connection of the mountains and these seven kings. According to the angel, throughout human history, this great whore, the great harlot, who has led mankind into rebellion against God, we're told in this prophecy what? These kingdoms have ridden on five, right, five kings, who have fallen. So that's past tense. And that's likely a reference to Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, and Greece. Five. So this system has ridden on five kingdoms in the past from where John is. We got five. But then we're told that there is one, one is, or exists presently in John's days, which would be what? Obviously, that would be the Roman Empire. But then the other, the seventh, has not yet come. Now, in the original language, the phrase here, and the other, that describes a future kingdom, it literally means that the seventh kingdom here will be similar to the one that is before it, the one that is. So it will be similar to that of Rome. It will be Western, European, Consider her to be a revised Roman Empire of sorts. A European Union. The angel then tells John that the beast is of the seventh. So he'll come up. He'll rise to power of the seventh. However, what what then are we told? He'll become the eighth before going to perdition or receiving a final judgment, which we'll, we'll get to in a second. Let's continue. Verse 12. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. Now, regarding this seventh, what will become an eighth kingdom, led by the Antichrist, the harlot rides upon this system, this moral system. The angel tells John that the ten horns of the beast represent ten kings in this final kingdom who will receive authority for one hour. And in the Greek, that would be just a really short time. It's a blip on the radar. They'll receive their power from, we're told, the Antichrist, again, within this last superpower. But in the end, the angel says, all ten of them, they'll be given authority by the Antichrist. It'll be a short time. 
But then they're going to give all of their power, all of their authority back to the beast. But then again, his reign will only last, we're told, for a short time. In the context of the flow of world empires, we can understand how this would be. Now, prophetically, if you're kind of scratching your head, you're like, man, you just pulled a lot of things out of the air to make sense of this. I'm doing so from a a bit more of a biblical context. You see, the exposition of John's vision here is completely consistent with what the prophet Daniel also sees. What he references in in Daniel chapter 2, when he talks about the ten toes of a final kingdom, again made up of of, of iron and partly of clay, It's, it's it's a radical vision, It's also consistent with what Daniel talks about in his seventh chapter, talking about ten horns, and from the ten horns rises a little horn, again being the Antichrist. Best commentary of the Old Testament is the New Testament, and sometimes the best commentary of the New Testament is the Old. Provides a cipher. Verse 14. So these, and again, this ten-nation final world power that's led by the Antichrist, These, they will make war with the Lamb. If you're like, well, who's the Lamb and why is Lamb capitalized? Well, it's because going all the way back to chapter 4 and 5, the heavenly scene, we have Jesus presented in heaven as the Lamb, as he had been led to the slaughter. So this is Jesus. They will make war with the Lamb. So this is at the battle of Armageddon. But the Lamb will overcome them. So the the angels making it clear that the inescapable fate of the Antichrist and this last kingdom will be perdition, adding, for he, the Lamb, Jesus, is Lord of lords and King of kings. Jesus is the supreme power, and he is the ultimate authority. He is the authority over authorities. I love this part. And those who are with him, which presumably are with him in his second coming, which we'll get to in chapter 19. Those who are with him would include you and I. Notice these things. Those who are with him are called. Literally, those who are with him have been invited to be with him. Have you been invited? We have been chosen, we're told, or or literally hand-selected, picked out and faithful which doesn't really speak to our ability to do anything or our ability to be anything but rather it's faith in what that ultimately is our faithfulness it's faith in jesus predominantly it's all that matters verse 15 then he the angel said to me and we've looked at this but the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples multitudes nations and tongues this universal ideal and the ten horns which you saw on the beast These will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill this purpose, to be of one mind, and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman whom you saw is, and note, is, is her present manifestation. So this is kind of a word to John. If you want to know how this Babylon, how this system, where it is right now, what it's riding upon presently, it is the great city which reigns, again in the present tense, over the kings of the earth. So what what the angel's telling John here at the end is like, hey, if you want to see Babylon right now, well, when you get done with the vision, look around you. It's Rome. It's this Roman Empire. Now the entire purpose, again, of the chapter, the thesis, the context is what? It's the angel telling John, inviting John to come and see how the woman, the great harlot, Babylon the Great, representing this worldly system of morality, will be judged. That's the thesis and the context. You want to know how this ends for this system that is run antithetical to God from the beginning? I will show you. Now, and what can only really be described as kind of a twist of irony, an ironic twist to the story. While this system had ridden on the back of a succession of world empire after world empire throughout the millennia. This final kingdom, the final manifestation, headed up by the Antichrist, it's the beast 
that will be the harlot's ultimate downfall. Again, look at it in verse 16. We're told here, the ten horns will hate the harlot. You see, the power brokers of the world here towards the end, they will come to detest the whole system. As a result, we're told that they, they will make her desolate. So they'll bring her to ruin and they'll make her naked. They'll strip her down for the, all the world to see. She's just a whore. And then we're told that they will eat her flesh, so they'll cannibalize her, and then burn her with fire. Might be better to burn her with fire before you eat her, but that's what the text says. The system and the end. What does it do? It eats itself. And it's utterly consumed. And specifically, how are they going to accomplish this? The angel says that the great whore, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, the moral current upon which the fallen world has ridden since the beginning will come to an end in one moment. And what is the moment? Look at the text. It is the moment these ten kings give their kingdom to the beast. Again, this is what makes the overarching storyline of the Bible and really specifically the fate of Babylon so ironic. You know, you would have thought, as we've been going through the book of Revelation, right? You know, when we get to the end, we get to the battle of Armageddon, you got Jesus coming back, you've got the judgment of the wickedness of the world, you got all these things happening, the Antichrist, the false prophet being thrown into the, the Abuso, the, the lake of fire, Satan being placed into the Abuso, you got all this stuff happening. How will Babylon the Great be judged in the end? You would have thought, well, Jesus, Jesus gets her, you know? That is Jesus that does her in. And yet... What it is true that God put it into their hearts to fulfill his purposes so that his word might be fulfilled. When it's all said and done, Babylon, the whore, will be destroyed by the very beast it rode to power. It's really a fascinating twist in my perspective that at the end, this worldly moral system started by Satan in the garden with a lie that man could be his own God, ends up doing what? It exalts one man as God. And that's how it's destroyed. You know, the closer we get to the close of history, secular humanism, or this moral structure, which exalts man as his own God, it's all said and done. Secular humanism will give way. It will be taken over. It will be dominated and consumed by this twisted monotheism where one man, the Antichrist, the replacement Christ, the instead of Christ, enters the temple and he says, I'm God. He rides a system where man can be God and then in one moment he stands up and he says, no, 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 no. I'm. While religious Babylon, this system, this moral system, diametrically contrarian to the standards of God's word. While it has always existed, and while it has always manifested throughout time, in all kinds of varying ways, I want to bring this passage home to you and I by applying it to our day and age. And I think that there's, there's some license to do this from the text because, again, John has given this vision towards the end of the first century, and how does it all, the angel applies it to him. Hey, you want to see Babylon in your day? Look at Rome. So where do we see Babylon today so we understand what it is, what it looks like, knowing its destiny? You know, after the last 50 years, the Western world, America included Europe, have you noticed that we've, we have grown more secular and in turn become less God-fearing, less, God less Christian. People talk about it that we live in a post-Christian world. And there's some truth to that. But one of the things that's interesting about the examination of it all from a cultural standpoint is that while we've grown more secular, godless, less Christian, moral standards have not become more relative or subjective as one would have expected. 
Instead, the more secular we get, the more godless we get, the less Christian we get, morals have become even more absolute. I mean, it really is astounding in a secular society how many of our policies are not only justified using moral terminology by our leaders and our influencers, but how so many of these policies, how many so many of these positions have zero room or tolerance for any type of dissenting view. Have you noticed that? Relativism, relativism. It was the, it was the moniker of the 60s and 70s. Let people make their own decisions. Let, you know, what's true for you is true for you. It's all a matter of your perspective. Roll with it. It's those Christians that believe in absolutes. And yet, secularism, less Christian, post-Christian, absolutes have become more determined, just determined by someone other than God. I'm going to get in trouble. But I have to kind of articulate some examples here. Of, of how moral language is used to justify positions. Wear a mask or you're complicit in killing grandma. Wait a second. Can we have a debate on that? Like, I don't want to kill grandma. I don't know about your grandma. I like my grandma. Maybe you want to kill your grandma. I'm not sure. But it's moral language. Actually, actually, no, 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 no. no. You need to wear two masks to be a better person than just the one maskers or the end. But do you see how a policy, is, it's, it's, it's presented in moral terminology, being a good person or a bad person? If you don't support a perpetual war in Afghanistan, you don't believe that little girls should have the right to self-determination. Not considering the fact that we've had more Americans die in Afghanistan than on September 11th. The belief that human beings are biologically male and therefore might have an inherent advantage in athletics over biological girls, that position, it's not that you can agree or disagree or dissent, it's that you're a bigot. It's moral terminology, condemnation, isn't it? Driving an SUV or supporting fracking, clean coal technology, well, it really just reveals that you're an eco-terrorist and want to destroy the planet. Now, I think we should take care of our planet. For 100 years, no one thought that it was immoral to call the Spanish flu by its country of origin. But today it's xenophobic to acknowledge that COVID-19 likely originated in China. Like that's xenophobic. Wait, what? Like within our current and political and cultural context, I don't know if you've sensed it, but there's no room or tolerance for any type of middle position regarding anything in this world, is there? Like moral standards and absolutes are everywhere in a secular world. White people who refuse to acknowledge they are racist are in fact proving their racism. In fact, it's now morally incumbent that all white people confess the generational sin of slavery as an act of repentance, embracing restorative measures whereby either financial reparations or affirmative actions are taking place. If you don't support that, you're a racist. You know, it's, it's an inhumane to believe that maybe a physical border barrier along the southern border might help, like, end or curtail the chaos of our broken immigration system. But no, no, such a position, that's inhumane. You know, for an entire summer, this is the one that will get me in trouble. We saw, I'm going to speak truth. You can hate me, I don't care. For an entire summer, we saw the secular media argue that disenfranchised minority communities were morally justified in looting Foot Locker because it was the only way they could truly express their need for societal change. And if you disagreed with that, you're a racist. Aside from these things, Babylon, Babylon has made it clear that love only wins when it manifests through the complete acceptance and total celebration of homosexuality. In fact, there is no room for any type of dissent or disagreement from the orthodoxy. The belief, it's part of the secular canon. It is an absolute truth. Any contrarian position is viewed as hate. I'm a loving guy. 
I could go on and on and on and on with examples. I really could. I'm not. But you know, there is this, there is this audacity. I want to sum it this way. There is an audacity to the fact that the secular world that we live in has made it crystal clear that God's positions on sexuality, marriage, and gender is morally reprehensible. The irony. You know, from this macro perspective, looking at this chapter, it really presents for us three incontrovertible truths. First, there is without a doubt two contrary versions of what is moral at work in our world. That's what this passage, this chapter confirms. And if you thought progressive, liberal ideas would free mankind from the strict moral absolutes characteristic of religion, think again. Because God has been removed. As the chief moral lawgiver in America, secular man has simply taken that mantle upon himself. You know, as a Christian, you can feel the current, can't you? You can feel the current in our society carrying us into unknown places. That is Babylon. Two, because Babylon the Great was originally founded upon a lie that man could be his own God. And every single manifestation of this system, including our own, she proves to be hostile to anyone who would stand for the truth. Again, in Revelation 17, verse 6, John, he provides this startling reminder. He says, I saw the woman, and she was drunk. She was drinking. She was sucking it up, the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Friend, never forget that this world, the world, it's not our home. And as a result, Babylon, she sees our influence in this world, our light, our flavor, as a threat to her dominion. I could dovetail to a whole other Bible study, but I'll just summarize it with what Jesus would say in John 15. He told his disciples, which includes you and me, he says, if the world hates you, which it does, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you. Yet because you are not of the world, and I chose you out of the world, Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they keep my word, they will also keep yours. Finally, and I think this is one of the big lessons you take away from this particular chapter. The cancel culture of Babylon will ultimately cancel itself. Again, isn't that kind of, there's a poetry to it. You know, the, the, the truth and what's really the definitive fallacy of secular humanism, it, it's this. The system, and don't miss this, if, if you catch anything this morning, please remember this. The system of Babylon allows men to think they can be their own God. That's what it's sold on. But the system knows that man can never be his own God. Like in a lot of ways, Babylon the Great, the harlot, is a trickster. She promises to provide mankind what she can never provide mankind. Understand it best. All humanity can ever truly achieve. All you can ever really achieve regarding freedom and liberty is choosing which master you want to be enslaved to. That's, that's the gist of your freedom. Please know. Everyone serves somebody. That's what Bob Dylan poetically sang. Everyone does. You cannot escape the reality you are a servant of something or someone. And it's not you. You might think it's you. It's not. That's the reality. At best, all you can do is choose a master. But you will have one. It's inescapable. You see, you are free to choose the system 
of Babylon and what she sells. And, and in turn, you can allow the great whore to dictate your moral standards until you ultimately worship either the Antichrist or an Antichrist, a replacement Christ, worshiping something you're looking to save you from your misery. And that's what hell is. We define hell as what we want to escape more than anything. And then we look for a savior to help us escape hell. If you understand hell is a lake of fire, then you will look for the right savior. His name is Jesus. But if your hell is, is being poor or some insecurity, you will look for a savior to save you from that thing. It'll be a weight loss program, a diet, an exercise routine, a job, a career, and you will sacrifice everything in your life on the altar of it because that's your savior. But you worship something. Everyone worships something or someone. Everyone. So your options are Babylon and the whore's that she presents. Or, in contrast, you can tether yourself to the unchanging truth articulated in God's word that your biggest problem is you. <laughs> and therefore, you need a savior from you. And his name is Jesus. You can worship an antichrist, an instead of Christ, or you can worship Jesus Christ. And if you're not sure the yin or the yang to that, just study his life and his person and who he is. This system is rotten and he is holy. And, and this system is filthy, but he is pure. And this system will change on you in a dime. It's hard to keep up with what you get canceled with today. You think you're finally up on the norm and then the norm changes because it's subjugating you. It's keeping you under its thumb. It's hammering you. Or you could be like, you know what, this, this, this many waters and this tide that's headed to destruction, you know, I just want the unchanging truth of the gospel so I know where I stand forever in Jesus. Because he is the same yesterday and today and forever, and his perspective of you won't change because it's not based in you. It's based in his grace and his goodness and how much he loves you. So you can't lose it. You can't destroy it. You can't cause Jesus to love you any more than he already does or cause him to love you any less. You want that or the whore? <laughs> can't say it any other way, but that's the truth. As you weigh your options, don't forget what the angel says in Revelation 17, verse 14. He says, these will make war with the lamb. The lamb will overcome them. For he is and will always be. I added that part. The Lord of lords and the king of kings. And if you're with him this morning, you've been called and you've been chosen. And so we remain faithful. So, Father, Lord, we thank you for your word, how good it is, what it says to us. In Jesus' name, amen.